0: Well, there was a man, I heard about a man who loved money really more than anything. This was his primary love in life. And he had worked hard and he had made a lot of money throughout his life, so much so that when he got to the end of life, he told his wife, he said, look, I know that I'm about to die. Um, When I do, I would like you to take all of my money and uh, put it in my casket with me. And he made her promise this. So, so he, he dies. The, uh, the service is there. The casket's open. Everyone files by, and everyone's kind of watching to see what the wife will do. She has this box, and she slips it in the, in the casket, and uh, th- they close the casket and take it away. And her friend comes up and says, Please tell me you did not put all of the money In that box, in that casket. She says, Well, I promised him I would do it. She says, You mean you put all of your money in that casket with him? She said, I sure did. I wrote him a check. (laughs) When we think of idols, we typically think in modern terms of money. That's a That can be a big one. It's an obvious one, but it's easy to dismiss because there's always somebody who's got a bigger problem with it than we do. And so as long as there's the Ted Turners in the world, we figure that we're okay when it comes to, to money. But there's another idol that we struggle with even more than money. In fact, it is so common. Um, Kathy and I went to the Hard Rock Cafe years ago in Dallas. I don't know if you remember when the Hard Rock Cafe was in Dallas, or at least the one that was used to be in the old McKinney Avenue Church. And, uh, like, you know, we don't have a church there, so let's put a Hard Rock Cafe in there. So they did, and we walked in, and it, it, uh, several things were very uh, arresting about it. First of all, if you've ever been to a Hard Rock Cafe, they play hard rock. And it's loud. At one point, I literally was screaming, You look beautiful tonight, my dear! Because <laughs> she couldn't hear what I was saying. But one of the things that really struck me when we walked in was a massive stained glass. It's like one of the first things you see. You walk in, there's this massive stained glass. I kid you not, it was 30 feet tall of Elvis. And they had other stars that you could sort of re- recognize. I think Buddy Holly and some others that were up there. But Elvis was sitting on a throne in this, uh, in this stained glass. And I saw it I thought, this is still a house of worship. There's a British pop singer named Robbie Williams. He, he said this in an interview. He said... I pray, I ask Elvis to look after me. I've got a tattoo on my arm. Elvis, grant me serenity. Before our concert, uh, before our concert, our band gathers in a huddle, and we pray to Elvis to look after us while we're on stage. <laughs> you know that's sort of funny, because from our perspective, we think it's unthinkable. But it's only because our forms of worship as far as as people are far more subtle. We look at an extreme example of that and we think, well, that's ridiculous. That's unthinkable. I would never do that. And the reality is we struggle with people worship every single day. We call it something else. We call it respect or we call it, um, in biblical terms, fear of man. But the reality is we're worshiping People, um, we we worship or we struggle with the fear of man or worshiping people. Whenever we we say things like, um, "I wonder when we're so concerned about how how we're dressed, right? What are people going to think about how I'm dressed? What is what is Rex going to think of my my sports jacket? Because he'll tell you if he doesn't like it." He's told me before. <laughs> Not really, but but we tend to worship what we think we need. If we need money, if we need uh, approval, then we will sacrifice for that which we think we need. In some sense it's worship. If God is what we need, If he is the one that provides our needs, if we're looking to him, then it's appropriate that we worship God. But the reality is people can also take the place of God and become the ones that we worship. This is why sometimes we are able to control ourselves with our friends who frustrate us, but we'll be rude to our family. Because we know that if we push it too far with our friends, they'll leave and won't be our friends, but our family, they're sort of stuck with us, we can get away with it. It's the fear of man. For some reason, we can have a clear trust in Christ for eternity, but we'll live our daily lives in fear of people. We worship what we think we need. Romans one talks about fearing people or fearing created things as opposed to fearing the creator. And um, that is essentially an idol. Even people of faith wrestled with this. Think through the scriptures for a moment. Abraham, think about Abraham's life. When he went down to Egypt, he was afraid because his wife Sarah was a beautiful woman that they were gonna kill, the Egyptians were gonna kill him. And so he had Sarah lie, or it was a half lie, half truth. Say, say you're my sister. That was the fear of man. When King Saul, he feared the people, and so he disobeyed God's direct command. Peter feared for his life and instead denied Jesus rather than saying, yes, I was with him. And even later on, even after Peter had the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, we're told in Galatians 2, Paul tells us that incident of Peter separating himself from the Gentiles after the Jews came from Jerusalem. That's the fear of man as opposed to the fear of God. And just chapters earlier, Peter himself had said, we must obey men, uh, God rather than men. So we struggle. We're not alone in our struggle with the fear of man. It is a very normal reaction. And if you think, you know, I never struggle with the fear of man, I can just say one word, evangelism. And all of a sudden you realize, wow, yeah, I do struggle with it. We struggle with being approved by people. We really do. And even people of great faith did this. Well, let's turn together to the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 17. As we take a single message from each of the 66 books of the Bible, we come to the section, actually we came last time to the section of the prophets of the Old Testament. Now think through just sort of the history of Israel as we've gone through it in our series, but just in the history as you know it. God made a covenant with Abraham that he would give them land, he would give Abraham's descendants land, descendants, and blessing. That there would be a great blessing through the line of Abraham. And God brought this about by bringing them into the land of Israel but he said in the book of Deuteronomy, he said, you're going to get to stay in the land if you're obedient. If you're disobedient, not only will I not bless you, but I'll take you out of the land until you repent, and then you'll come back into the land. It was not just a warning, but it was also a prophecy, because that is exactly what would happen. The um, So the prophets are sort of sprinkled in the historical books, but we have this section called the prophets, divided into two sections, the major prophets and the minor prophets. Major prophets aren't major because they're more important, they're just bigger, uh, They're more, more content. The minor prophets are smaller, not because they're, they're less important. But the, the prophets are so focused on this time of warning God's people, if you don't turn around, God's going to take you out of the land. And so much so that the prophets are almost categorized in three different ways. You've got the the prophets that are before the exile, called pre-exilic or pre-exile, or then you have the exilic prophets, those that were during the exile, and then post-exilic, those after the exile. So you've got these three sections of, of prophets. Jeremiah, as well as Isaiah, and most of the prophets that we'll look at in the weeks to come, Focused before the exile. It was telling God's people, if you want to stay in the land, you need to shape up. You need to come back to the Lord and, and quit walking away and doing your own thing. Jeremiah's ministry was a fantastic ministry from the perspective of, of a faithful person who perseveres, but it was also a real struggle for Jeremiah because nobody listened to him. That is not a ministry you want to have. God says, look, I've called you to a ministry that's going to have absolutely no effect except in the word of God and the, and the centuries to follow people will be encouraged by your example. So that's the context of Jeremiah 17. In Jeremiah 17 in particular, we're looking at Judah, the southern kingdom, the kingdom that Jeremiah was in and was ministering to, was threatened by foreign invaders And, of course, the foreign invaders coming in, the Babylonians, were going to come in and take them out of the land. And so the challenge was, Judah's challenge was, should we trust God or should we go knock on Egypt's door and ask them for help? Should we look to man or should we look to God? Should we have a fear of man or should we have a fear of God? So you can see how this relates to us. Well, Jeremiah 17, let's look in verse 5, as there's a contrast that the prophet is making. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Cursed. We hear the word cursed, Uh, That's not a word we use a lot when we think of hearing the word curse. When we think of curse, we usually think someone's got bad language. But in a biblical sense, this word for cursed, um, this sort of a curse is always conditional and it only takes effect when somebody does something in which the curse was intended to prevent. If they would quit trusting in mankind, then this curse would not be in effect. so cursed is the is the man or the word there can mean uh, it means human not just man male but cursed is the person who trusts in people cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the lord so you've got two different objects of trust people and god and we're told that Obviously, it's not a good thing to trust in foreign people as opposed to trusting in the Lord. There's no difference between Judah looking to foreigners for military help and you and me looking to other people to give us what we feel like we need. There's no difference at all. If your trust is in people, then Jeremiah says that your heart turns away from the Lord. And it's a fatal choice. It's here called a curse. It's a fatal choice. And there's a reason why. Why is this person cursed? Look at verse six. We're told, for he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. If you think it's hard to trust God Try living a life apart from God. If you think following Jesus Christ is a difficult existence, try to live your life apart from following Jesus Christ, and you'll know what a hard life is. At least, it's not that the Christian life isn't hard, but at least with the Christian life, we have the Lord. Imagine, I can't imagine how people who don't know the Lord cope with life. It is such a challenge just even having the Lord and coping with life. Jeremiah's hometown was a place called Anathoth, and Anathoth was just west of the Jordan Valley. It's a little bit north of Jerusalem, west of the Jordan Valley, and just north of the Dead Sea, northwest of the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is probably this area that he's talking about when he says a land of salt without inhabitants. It's called Dead Sea because nothing visible can live in the sea. There's no fish, no fishermen. It's just they harvest salt there. That's pretty much all they do. And it is an area that is waste. It is hot. If you go to Israel today, the hottest part of your trip will be the Dead Sea, it's the lowest place on earth. And it's not only the lowest place on earth in terms of elevation, but when we look at this metaphor that Jeremiah is giving us, that this a land of salt without inhabitant, a person who doesn't walk with God is at the lowest place on earth in many ways. So the Dead Sea is a fitting picture of being at the lowest place you possibly could be without God. So here's a principle that the text gives us right here at the very beginning, and it's a principle that is true today will be true every day of our lives. When we look to people instead of God, we end up painfully dissatisfied. When we look to people instead of God, we will be painfully dissatisfied. I read a book several years ago that describes us as basically needy and it used the metaphor all throughout the book that we have that that we have love tanks or basically love banks if you want to think of it that way and various people in our lives have accounts and different levels of accounts and they make deposits they make withdrawals and if they make too many withdrawals then in that relationship we feel a negative balance You can sort of see where the metaphor goes, and in a sense, humanly speaking, that's very true. That's the way the world operates. But boy, that is a hard way to operate because everyone's got a different bank book. In my relationship with my wife, I have a different bank book than she does, and I think that I made lots of deposits. But she may think, you know what? You're in the red, buddy. And you can see how that works, not only in a close relationship, but in all relationships. If we view ourselves as love tanks, and it's somebody else's job to fill us, we will always see ourselves as empty, or, or at least needing more. And the tragedy is we will often also see ourselves as victims, because no one is going to be able to fill us to the, to the level of our desire. When we look to people to fill us and to meet our needs, basically the question that we ask ourselves is, who will make me feel good today? We wouldn't have a t-shirt made that says that, you know, make me feel good today. But in the reality, that's how we feel. Think about even just coming here to class, the motivation for coming to class, it's not that we don't anticipate fellowship or the joy of healthy, good fellowship. There's everything healthy and right about that. But if we are looking, that is we see, if we see ourselves as empty people and we need other people in order to fill that emptiness, we will often see ourselves living in the red. Who will make me feel good today? I spoke with a woman, well, I'll just tell you, it was my mom, many years ago. My mom's been with the Lord for, what's it been now, I guess 15 years. But she really struggled hard with life. Much of her life, she really struggled. And I remember one time she told me, she said, Wayne, I don't care if I have to get married 10 times, I will find a man who will make me happy. So, anyway, but she never did. She never did. And she died in a very, very sad place. And she never came to the realization, and many people don't, that even a great spouse makes a lousy God. The fear of man is so often lived out in marriage, but it is also lived out among friends, among roommates, among family, when we look to people to fill that part of us that only God can fill. Jeremiah says, Cursed is the person who trusts in people and makes flesh his strength, instead turns away from the Lord. You'll be like a bush in the desert. You won't even see it when prosperity comes. You're going to live in stony wastes in the lowest place on earth. After a lifetime of disappointment, we can often sort of get cynical or tempted to be cynical because the reality is when we look to people, we're going we're to experience hard things. Everybody in your life at some point is going to fail you. Now, I don't mean to sound like Scrooge reading Ecclesiastes, but, but that's true. Your parents failed you in many ways. Your children will fail you. Your spouse will fail you. Your pastor will fail you. Everybody will fail you and you'll fail them. And also you'll fail yourself as I do as well. After a lifetime of disappointment, we can... We can sort of try to let God fill our needs or let people fill our needs, needs, but both can't happen. I love this African proverb. It says, the man who tries to walk two roads will split his pants. (laughs) Oh, such wisdom in that. And it's true, we can't live both ways. We can't look to people and look to God. Jeremiah says, if you look to people, if, if trusting in people, then you are going to live in stony places. Our trust has to come from somewhere else, and thankfully it can. Look at the very next verse, verse seven. And notice the direct contrast Jeremiah makes. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. The contrast there is meant to be arresting. Contrast verse five with verse seven. Look at verse five and verse seven, back and forth, where it says, Cursed is uh, the man who trusts in mankind. Verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Verse 5 says, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Verse 7 says, the one who trusts in the Lord. Verse 6 says, he's going to be like a bush in the desert. Verse 8, as we'll see, he would be like a tree planted by the water. There is a contrast that's shown here by using water. And by using a, a, a potential place of flourishing as opposed to a potential place of being a, a, of a, living in a wasteland. The word blessed here in verse 7, it's written the way that Jeremiah writes it in the Hebrew. It always indicates an intimate relationship with the one for whom it's intended. It's saying in essence that the, the person is blessed. This person has an intimate relationship With God. So here's reality 101 for us that satisfaction and security only come from one place. We live in an imperfect world. No person, no circumstance in life can ever possibly produce the exact ingredients for our stability, our joy, and our purpose. Every disappointment that we experience with people should draw us closer to the one who will never ultimately disappoint us, and that's God. And the good thing is that gives us freedom because being close to God then frees us up to love people more and to need them less. And that's really the solution to the fear of man, is to love them more and need them less. Even Jesus experienced this. Normal life includes hurt, rejection, and loss. Jesus experienced this. The text implies a question, and you could almost call this our second principle. The text implies a question Do you really believe God can be trusted with your life? Do you really believe God can be trusted with your life? Now, intellectually, we'd all say amen, but Look at the track record of living and then ask, let let your life answer that question, not your mind. Do you really believe that God can be trusted with your life? And as you look at your life, as I look at my life, the reality is we have put a lot of trust in people and not just the Lord, or sometimes not even the Lord, that we've looked at people to do what only God can do. I remember reading about a man some years ago who fell, true story, who fell 110 feet off a water tower. He was working on a water tower, fell 110 feet and landed in some soft dirt and, and lived. 110 feet, that's like 11 stories, and fell face down in soft dirt and lived. And of course, you know, he broke like everything, but he, he lived. <laughs> And as the paramedics were, they, had, they lifted him up, and as they were carrying him to the ambulance, I love this, the, the, the man is not three feet off the ground, and, he's, and he tells the paramedics, don't drop me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it, what a great, great perspective, because we're like that guy sometimes. We just survived a 110-foot fall, and we're concerned about a 36-inch drop. God protects us from the long drop into hell, but somehow we're nervous about a three-foot life. As Paul said, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God took care of the eternity part, don't you think God can take care of Tuesday? Do you really believe God can be trusted with your life? And just as the word cursed is a warning to those who won't trust the Lord, so the word blessed is a promise for those who will. And now verse eight tells us how. Tells us the reason that a person who trusts in the Lord is blessed. Look at verse eight. He will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green And it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit." Notice it says the person who trusts God won't fear when the heat comes. Not if the heat comes, but when. And notice also that trusting God doesn't keep the heat away. Heat comes if you're trusting God or if you're not trusting God. But the difference is when the heat comes, you don't have to be afraid. You won't fear when the heat comes. Trusting God is not a removal of the situation that that is the struggle. It gives you something to hold on to in the struggle. Even in the midst of the heat and the drought, we're told there is fruit. It's like a person who is planted by by a, a stream of water. Very similar to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 may have come to mind as we read verse 8. Psalm 1 expands on this same idea. It's a great psalm. But the results of blessing and cursing are so clear. So if the results are so clear, trusting God's a good thing, Trust, not trusting God is a bad thing, or trusting in mankind is a bad thing, so why do we struggle to do it? Why is there such a challenge in our lives to do it? Well, verse 9 tells us why. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Because the fallen heart of humanity, God says, is more deceitful or literally more insidious than everything else. We're told that it's desperately sick or literally it is incurable. We cannot cure our our depraved heart We have a flesh, a sinful nature. In the New Testament, Paul calls it the flesh. The NIV calls it the sinful nature. It is a permanent part of who we are until we're dead or the rapture. And we have have, uh, the Holy Spirit also within us that goes head to head with that nature. And depending on whom we obey is the one that we will worship and the life that we will live. But both potentials are within us. One doesn't cancel out the other. One dominates the other. And the heart is more deceitful. D.L. Moody says, he says, it's easier for me to have faith in the Bible than to have faith in D.L. Moody, for Moody has fooled me lots of times. (laughs) That's well said. Look at verse 10. This deceitful heart, we're told in verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. As a partridge that hatches eggs which it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune, but unjustly. In the midst of his days it will forsake him, and in the end he will be a fool. The original language, the way Jeremiah wrote this in the original language, is emphatic. There in verse 10, at least in the New American Standard, it says, I, that's very emphatic, I, and then the Lord is very emphatic as well. And then the way that it's written is not just search the heart, but I continually search the heart. This is something God is continually doing. He is continually searching or exploring the heart. He is continually examining or scrutinizing or trying our minds. For what purpose? to give according to the results of our deeds. And I don't know if you have it there with the word for results there in verse 10, the end of verse 10. In my margin, it says literally the fruit, according to the fruit of our deeds, which takes us back up to verse eight. The end of verse eight says that a person who trusts in the Lord will not cease to yield fruit. So, trusting in the Lord goes right along with the Lord searching our heart and yielding a life of fruit. Not only that, but why the illustration is given here in verse 11 of this partridge, like a partridge hatching the eggs of another bird. The chicks aren't going to hang around, they're going to leave. This is what it's like when a person makes a fortune but unjustly, it leaves. It doesn't belong. It knows it doesn't belong, and so it leaves. And in the end, he will be a fool. The end results. He's shown to be a fool. So our only recourse, then, is to trust the Lord above everything else, even above our own deceitful hearts. And, boy, that's a challenge because in our Christian life, our hearts, quote, unquote, often make our decisions, a heart, our heart is just a different way of saying our emotions. You know, if we're faced in a situation, we'll say, well, of course, we'll baptize it with Christian ease. We'll say, I, I don't have a peace about this. Well, all you're saying is, I don't feel good about it. The reality is, the Bible may be very clear this is what the Lord wants you to do. You don't have a peace about it because you don't want to do it. Our hearts can deceive us. And so, if there is something that your heart is telling you, do this, but the word of God is saying, don't do that, then don't go with your heart. Your heart will lead you in a very, very bad place at times. Our only recourse is to trust God. Why can we trust the Lord? Well, look at verse 12. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Very simple verse, but boy, it tells us right there why we can trust in the Lord. G. Campbell Morgan says there are two words here that stand out in the sentence above all others. It's the word throne, and it's the word sanctuary. Throne speaks of God's authority, of God's sovereignty, of His his power. And sanctuary speaks of our shelter. A glorious throne on high from the beginning, it's eternal, it is powerful, and this is the place that we take security. Our trust is in the Lord because he is all-powerful. He is eternal, and we can have a place of security in the midst of this of life that challenges us to trust in people as opposed to trusting in God. So how do we trust in God every day? The text tells us we meditate on his truth. We can trust God because he's good, he is all-powerful, he's on the throne, it's a glorious throne, it's an eternal throne. Trusting in people we see over and over in our lives leads us to a place of victimization, or at least we, we, we feel like we're victims because people never give us all we want. We can trust God because he's just. And we're told also um, in verse, uh, let's see, verse 13, look at verse 13. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Now, let's, let's take a jump off of that. This is not the first time that Jeremiah has mentioned this and it is a very, very helpful illustration. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter two and let's look at this living water thing a little bit more. Jeremiah 2. There were really three ways, and there still are, only three ways that you can get water. From us, there are several ways we can get water as well. We can go to Kroger and buy a plastic thing that has a screw top. That's one way to get water. We can go outside to the uh, spigot beside our house and turn this little knob. Water comes out. We can go inside to the kitchen and turn a little knob, and water comes out. We have several options to get water. All of them are pretty wonderful. In Israel, there were several options as well. Uh, the, The best option was what they called living water. It was water that came from a spring. They called water that bubbled out of a spring living water because it moved all on its own, and it was the best kind. This is the kind of water that the woman at the well was telling Jesus where do you get this living water? Where do you where do where do you know that there's a spring around here? She wanted that. Of course Jesus was talking about something else. But living water is the best kind. Jerusalem is where it is because of the Gihon spring. It was built around that spring, around the hill that was there and it just sort of Blossomed out from there. Sometimes, like when I go to Jerusalem and we're walking through Hezekiah's tunnel, which begins right at the Gihon Spring, I'll just kind of stop and look at the spring because it bubbles up right under your feet as you're about to step into the tunnel. And I think this thing's been bubbling here for thousands of years, and it's because of this spring that that Jerusalem is where it is. It's just amazing how God uses simple things like that. So anyway, that's the best kind, living water. The second best kind is a well. It's still fresh, but you got to dig to get to it. And the third is not the best kind, but, hey, it's better than nothing. That's a cistern. A cistern is a hole that you dig, and rainwater gets funneled into it. And you got to really protect it and cover it so that mold and all kinds of mildew and junk didn't get in there. So the best kind is living water. The worst kind is a cistern. So with that as a context, look at Jeremiah 2, verse 12. The Lord says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, God's people traded the very best for the very worst. They looked instead from God, who was the source of living water, to their own resources. You dig a cistern that can't even hold water. This is the contrast. We forsake God, the only true source of life, when we turn away from him. We turn away from the Bible, and instead, when we look to people, and we try to go it alone. You know, when we have a dead battery in our car, we hook up the jumper cables, start the car up, and when, once we're convinced that it's good to go, we'll detach those cables and, and hope that the alternator does its thing for and recharges it up. But the reality is our spiritual life isn't like that. When our battery's dead, we tend to do the same thing. We'll hook God back up. And as soon as we got it started, we'll unhook God and drive on. Problem is, our spiritual life doesn't have an alternator. Our spiritual life doesn't recharge our batteries apart from God. We can't take the jumper cables off of the source of power. They've got to stay connected. God is our Father. He will always be our Father. We never outgrow that relationship. We never get to the point where, you know what, Lord? You've taught me all I need to know now. The word of God is fantastic. I've read the whole thing. Thanks. It never happens like that. We have to stay connected to the Lord every day. Living water, the great thing about living water is it provides constantly, but you have to come back to it. The source doesn't move, so we can't move from the source. The only true source of life is the lord he will always be our father and when our lives feel empty hear hear me when i say this when our lives feel empty we should see it as a sign that we're trying to find satisfaction in something other than god does your life feel empty right now if it does it could be that you're trying to find satisfaction in something other than god The old Puritan Thomas Gadiger said, the soul of man bears the image of God, so nothing can satisfy it but he whose image it bears. I love the image that that uh, Jeremiah gives us here of living water versus a cistern. Our own efforts can't hold water. It's a beautiful metaphor. Our own efforts can't hold water. It doesn't hold water. We have to trust in God. I'll never forget uh, when our girls were toddlers, we'd play all kinds of games with them. You know, isn't it just sad that kids have to grow up? I mean, it's great when they grow up and love the Lord, but there's just nothing like kids in the house, except maybe grandkids. We haven't got there yet, but I I hear that's a really wonderful thing. But kids in the house, when our girls were toddlers, it was fun, we'd wrestle, we'd You know, we'd we'd play hide-and-seek, all kinds of fun stuff. And one thing that we enjoyed doing for a time was when they'd come to me, uh, like our younger daughter would come to me and she'd say, in the air. And she wanted me to throw her. You ever see that? Well, you gotta be careful with that trick. But, you know, you you take them and you just throw them up and then catch them. And uh, it's great. It's fun, and she absolutely loved it. So Sarah, our uh, older daughter, thought, you know, this sounds great. I'd like to do this too. So Sarah, throw her up. And as she leveled off just below the ceiling fan, she didn't hit it, but she she leveled off. Her face went from joy to absolute terror as she realized she was not in control. And of course, I still caught her and everything was fine. But where, where, where Katie would say, Daddy, do it again, Sarah would say, don't do it again. In fact, she clung to me like a, like a cat. You know, like a cat, you know, all the claws go in you at one time. This is, Sarah was like, put me down, don't, don't throw me again. And later I thought about that, why, why would one daughter Absolutely love the experience. Same experience, but the other daughter was terrified of it. And I thought the reason is because one daughter was focusing on my ability to catch her. She was totally confident that I would catch her, and I did. The other daughter was focusing on her inability to control the flight. And that's how we are with God, isn't it? In some moments, we have absolute peace because we know God's in control. At other moments, we are at absolute fear because we know we are not in control. The reality is we're never in control, but sometimes we have the illusion that we are. Jeremiah tells us that we, when we fear God, we need not fear people. And when we fear people, we will live a life feeling victimized, and we will live a life that is like the lowest place on earth. So we have a choice today to worship God or worship people, to fear God or to fear people. So I'll repeat the question that I asked you, and it's a good place to stop. Do I really believe God can be trusted with my life? Let's pray. Father, as Jeremiah showed us, you are on the throne. You are all-powerful. And as Judah failed to realize, as they looked to Egypt, as they looked to foreign powers for their security against the Babylonians, we can have that same fear, and whatever it is in our lives, that seems to be invading, that our needs seem so huge, and we can easily look to people for a quick fix, for solutions instead of looking to you and waiting. Bring us back to Jeremiah 17 often. Remind us that our heart is deceptive, and it is not what guides us, but your word is what guides us. Help us to look into the word, to find the obedient way, to find the truth of what it says, and to follow it without question, every time, and trust that we will bear fruit because we are trusting in you and not in people. And instead, Father, give us that place of, of such security in you that people, we look to people not as to feed us, but rather we look to people as opportunities to love that we can love them so freely in spite of their imperfections because you have filled us so completely with Jesus Christ. You have filled us so completely with the certainty of your provision, of your sovereignty, and of your wisdom in our lives that other people become opportunities to show that love and not just opportunities to take. It's a tough message to, to listen to, Father. We need your supernatural empowerment and we'll trust that you'll give it. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.